0: Bandwidth for this podcast is brought to you by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This episode is brought to you by Squarespace dot com, the fast and easy way to publish a high quality website or blog for a free trial and 10 percent off your new account. Go to Squarespace dot com slash twip. This week on the show, a question and answer session. Is Aperture 64-bit? How do you shoot in low light? And what makes the 50mm so special? Right here on This Week in Photography, number 138. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to This Week in Photography. This is Alex, and uh, I am sitting in for Frederick, who is at uh, WPPI, and he's going to be doing a um, some separate recording there, so we'll hear about that a little bit later in the week. I am here with Joseph Lanasky. Hey, Joseph. Good morning. The travel junkie, and uh, it's just the two of us today. I mean, everybody is at WPPI. I don't even know what WPPI is. What, Joseph, what is WPPI?
1: It is a wedding photography show, and I will actually be there tonight. I was supposed to be there now, but change of plans decided not to leave until tonight so i'll be making the uh, couple hour drive out to the desert um later this evening so it's
0: all weddings all
1: day all weddings all the time
0: wow that's
1: uh so basically all the hotshot photographers in the world are either at wppi Uh or are out in dubai getting a tan (laughs) what's in dubai that's the photo plus right the Uh, yeah okay yeah yeah that's that's a fun one i kind of wish i was there actually (laughs) <laughs>
0: and you're kind of thinking, you know, what? Why didn't I go? I, I, I uh, you know, I, I only know about PMA and uh, Photokina. Those are like the two that I know about, and then there's so many more. But if, with anything, that there's there's a lot of them going on. So, do we 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 have a little bit of news uh, of some of the stuff that that has uh, been coming up? Which is, uh, of course, during this announcement. And I'm not sure why it was timed with this instead of at, at PMA. But Panasonic announces, of course, what it leaked a little while ago, which is the new Lumix uh, G2 and G10. So the uh, the G2 uh, still has a 12.1 megapixel. Uh, it is um, now it does a 720p 30 uh, with motion JPEG, uh, and it it also has the lighter weight uh, ABC HD uh, light codec, um, which can be played directly from the uh, camera to a high def uh, uh, TV. So this is the upgrade, the successor of the G1. What do you what do you think, Joseph?
1: Well, sounds pretty good. I mean, seven twenty p is definitely it's you know one of those more than enough should be enough for anybody yeah. kind of things. I think that consumers don't need the ten eighty p. You know, a lot of the plasmas out there aren't even ten eighty; they're seven twenty. At least the the slightly older ones. And frankly, if you're just shooting consumer video, which is what you're going to do on these things, I think 720p is just fine.
0: Yeah. I think that that's, you know, a lot of the time, um, I've, I've been finding is even a lot of these cameras that shoot quote unquote 720p, you know, for instance, the LX3, the LX3 is a good example. I have an LX3. I bought an LX3 and, uh, I don't really like the quality of the video until I cut it in half. So it's, it's shooting right. 720p, and really, to me, in, in my head, it's 640 by 360, which is exactly that half, and then it looks fantastic. And right. so the, the, the thing is, is that one of the things we I think we have to keep in mind when we look at all of these still cameras and the cameras that do video uh, is is that it's very hard. I've 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 kind of come up. I'm of the opinion that it's very hard to squeeze that many pixels. Um, into a very, very small chip, and especially for these little cameras, uh, you know, fitting that into a small chip is not really something that uh, it does very well, and, I, and obviously the processing takes some time, and so a lot of times the numbers that we're getting, I think, are oftentimes, I mean, they, they can say 720, they can say 1080p, um, but a lot of times it's not, it's not what it's, you know, it, it's yeah, it's, it's, it's got that many pixels coming out, but they're, they're, do you really want all those pixels? I mean, right. you know, it's it's kind of like I, you know, it's like going and getting a really big meal rather than a really good one. <laughs> 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 you know, so, so I think that that's the thing. So, um, so it looks interesting. We'll see, uh, you know, they're, they're continuing down uh, that path. And so we'll see how those things turn out. Also, uh, Google acquires photo editing site Picnic um, to expand its web-based uh, photo services. Joseph, have you used Picnic?
1: I haven't. And I mean, you know, obviously I do all my photo editing long before I do the upload, right? And I'll do everything in Aperture and and send it up. And I would imagine most iPhoto users would be doing everything in iPhoto before uploading. Um, It seems a little strange, but I guess there's a market for it. I guess for people who don't use any photo management software, and I would guess, I'm stepping on a limb here, but I'm guessing that's mostly PC users. I can't imagine too many Mac users that wouldn't be using something like iPhoto right um you know you upload your pictures and you go oh gosh look there's red eye or it. it's crooked or whatever and you want to make the change it's it's nice capability to have but no i've I've never had a need for it
0: yeah i i uh i i've been trying to get everything all my photos into one place right now so that's been my my uh, project over the last couple of weeks i finally decided to pull the trigger because a lot of what was making me confused that was was that <laughs> that aperture had you know was didn't have what iPhoto had, so I wanted some of the stuff that mm-hmm. iPhoto had, but I wanted it to be an aperture, and uh, and uh, so I was kind of in between, and I jumped full board, <laughs> just in case you're wondering if it, if aperture handles over a hundred thousand images, uh, it does. It does. So, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> so, uh, so it's, uh, but you know, I, I do have a, it seems like it would be very slow to really depend on an online service to do a lot of this stuff. So I, mean, I would
1: imagine some of the things are, it's pretty low bandwidth, right? If you're, if you're uploading a couple meg JPEG right. and you're just going to fix the red eye or something that that's pretty simple, but right. Again, I don't, I don't see why you would want to just have that in your online photos. Wouldn't you want to have that locally so that if you decide to make a print or you want to share it on another website that the changes you've made are there and not, right. oh, I have to fix that red eye again and again? Right. Right. Absolutely. So
0: so uh also in the news uh speaking of aperture nodal ninja or, i'm sorry noise ninja uh, plug has been released for aperture three uh so if you're using aperture jef- definitely check out uh, uh noise ninja it is a fantastic little plug as far as- re- uh reducing the noise uh in your images uh it's not you know it's not doesn't fix everything but if you if if you have a medium amount of noise and you want to get to a low amount of noise uh it works pretty well Have you used it
1: I have. Uh, there's a couple of different tools out there, but I have used that one. Uh, not the brand new one for aperture three, but I used it before in aperture two. It right. does work really well. And if you are, if you're able to scale your image down 50%, you know, do your noise reduction and then scale it down before your final print or, or screen share, or wherever you're going with it, it can look remarkable. Yeah. remarkable. Yeah. yeah if you leave it at a hundred percent and you zoom all the way in, then you can definitely see some of the, the blurring that's happening. Right. Uh, you right. know this is how it's getting rid of the noise, but no, it's a phenomenal tool.
0: Now, is uh, we had a question online, so a lot of this is going to be Q and A this uh, today, or all of it, all the rest of it. That was all the news we we're going to talk about. Um, <laughs> is uh, uh, is aperture now fully 64 bit?
1: It is 64 bit, and there's <laughs> he says confusion. that he says that tentatively. Well, no, no, it is 64 bit, there, but there's confusion out there of what is running in 64 bit, and
0: and what 64 bit gets you
1: beyond good marketing. <laughs> Heck, I'm not an engineer. Apparently, it's better. It's got it's, more, it's more it. it must more, be it's got more stuff. Well, I mean, and one of the stiff.
0: things in 3D, 64-bit makes a big difference because it it, it is a, it relates to how much memory the 3D package can address, it and agrees, that's yeah. extremely important because we have renders that literally just tap out, you know, very quickly. And, and for a while, we were having to use the Photoshop and some of our 3D packages on the PC side of the of the Mac. So that that we could actually you know access enough memory to get certain frames out, right?
1: right. I think in general it's safe to say that it, it's just it's faster. You know, everything should be faster. If not everything, most things should be faster. What What's interesting is there's. A lot of people snow leopard users may know that the Snow Leopard doesn't boot into 64-bit by default. It boots into with a 32-bit kernel. And there's a way to trick it into booting into 64-bit. You hold down the six and four keys on startup. But I think what a lot of users don't realize is the next restart they do, it goes back to 32. So it doesn't stay there. <laughs> so
0: they're just kind of testing it right now. They kind testing of testing it. But
1: it's but it's really interesting. So if you if you look at if you do get info on aperture. Right. It has a checkbox. Do you want to launch in 32-bit mode? So right. it is running 64-bit. If right. you look at the uh, the, the system um, profiler, or not system profiler, what do you call it? the activity monitor? It'll tell you you know everything's running 64-bit. Uh, that it is running 64, even though you haven't booted in 64. And if you try and load a plugin that is not 64-bit, Apture will actually tell you it needs to relaunch and it will do that for you. It will relaunch in 32-bit mode for you with just one click and then launch the plugin. It's, it's really well done right. how you get there. Right. Um, but I'm not completely sure what the advantage or disadvantage is at this point. I actually did some tests booting the computer in 64-bit mode, you know, holding the 6 and 4 key and booting it normally in 32, did some speed tests, you know, just a couple simple things, some exports. And they were virtually identical. So, I, I mean, that's just one thing. Obviously, an export. right? right. But, and,
0: uh, yeah. and, and some people, uh, uh, we're going to definitely discuss. Uh, we'll wait an, again uh, to discuss uh, the um, difference between Lightroom and Aperture. I mean, the two of us that are on on the show today, there's our show. Our, I think our audi- our grouping of people is kind of halfway between Aperture and, and Lightroom. I think sure. most of, with the most of our hosts, and so uh, one is not necessarily better than the other one. It happens to be that the two people that are on show uh, are aperture users and so uh, and I'm and Joseph is way ahead of of where I am uh, with aperture I just have an enormous number of photos in there that I'm slowly digging myself through and organizing them and getting them all and and I and when when most most people ask me what why I chose aperture and I think that this really is important is that uh, I'm a heavy Photoshop user I don't really need I don't need I'm not I just don't want to learn something else to do what I need to do in Photoshop if I'm if I'm gonna do more than a correction you know, I just want to do it in Photoshop. I don't, you know, I'm, that's kind of the, the, my, my pattern. That's why I chose Aperture is because I needed to manage as many photos as possible. And I don't want it to leave in folders. I love the fact that I have this folder that Aperture makes <laughs> that manages all those photos. And I can simply just move that one, that one, what looks to me like a file, but it's really a package. Right. Um, you know, from one drive to another. And that's just my whole world. That, that So, lives you in so you're working manage then. You're letting Aperture manage everything. For I, you? Want, I, want, I want Aperture to manage everything for me. You know, and I I just want it to be in one place. I don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about where they are. If I back it up, I want to be able to back up. Like, if I just back this up, it's got all my information. Now, I know that all the images are still hidden in there. So, if anything really happened, if Apple decided never to make Aperture again, or if I decided I wanted to move, all the photos are still there. You know, everything's still there. Um, uh, I don't think that that's going to happen anytime soon, so I'm not too worried about it. But the So, anyway... I like to just have it managed for me, do all that stuff. Um, I think that Lightroom still, even with the updates that Aperture's done, I think if you really want to if you're not using Photoshop, if you're not using an editing package, and you want to have something that's going to do that editing, I still think that Lightroom's probably a little stronger um, as far as some of the tools that are in there. And I have to look at some of the new tools that Aperture has. I haven't really dug into them deeply, so I'm, I might change my mind. Yeah, but you usually, might be surprised. <laughs> yeah, so, but, but right now, my, my opinion has been to date. Is that is that up until and I haven't gotten haven't dug that far into it yet. Is if someone said, oh, I really want to do all my editing, you know, in, in in my package in my photo package, I usually would say, well, if that's really what you want to do, I'd lean towards Lightroom, and if you really want to manage lots of stuff, uh, I'd lean towards Aperture. But you know, Apple is obviously moving. I think both of them are moving toward... They both know that the, that other side was stronger, and I think both of them right. are moving that direction. So.
1: Yeah, there are some amazing new editing features in there. And, you know, right. don't want to turn this into an aperture show, but yeah, there are some impressive yeah. tools and in so,
0: there. And what's great is that we have two equals. Which is unusual, and, and I think it's very important. I hope that both of them stay equal, um, and and because uh, it's important for both of the applications for them to have some competition. So anyway, we're gonna we're gonna start the full Q and A here in just a second. And but before we do that, we want to thank our sponsor, Squarespace. Uh, this week of photography, of course, is brought to you by Squarespace. It is a fast and easy way to publish a high quality website or blog. And by the way, Twip Log is uh, done on Squarespace, and uh, most of the front ends that we're working on right now. Uh, we just I my production company um is uh getting started we're, we're splitting production away from our, our um the, the pixel core and uh and the new website of course is in squarespace and so we're working on it right now and we love it it's just great to be able to you know you can do all your editing whether it's a photo gallery forums opt you know if you're a beginner you can or if you want WYSIWYG you can throw it together if you've got so we have we have experienced css guys that we bring in at the last minute to kind of Extra stuff in there, and you can do all of that in Squarespace as well. Uh, all of the stuff is just kind of part of the service. And so, while you're paying a monthly service, you would normally, you know, pay that to somebody to host uh, your your website. And this way, it's all distributed. You don't have to worry about it going down. You know, those are the things that are that are great. It's a it's a great great site. If you want to get a free trial, you can go up to squarespace.com/twip. That's squarespace.com/twip. T-W-I-P, don't need a credit card. You can just try to build your own site, create your own little domain area within Squarespace, and figure out if it's something that you want to do. Uh, you can get 10% off if you go and use the offer code T-W-I-P, that's TWIP. So um, definitely check it out. That's squarespace.com slash TWIP. And now we're going to open to the questions. We've got three questions that were sent in. So we're going to start with those ones, and then we're going to move on to everyone um, uh, everyone who is uh, writing copious notes here um, <laughs> so the uh, I mean lots of stuff here so uh, if if we don't get to it go ahead and post it back into the IRC because we're uh, um, I'm gonna read through a couple of these first okay so um, question number one is from David Farrell he says as a photographer I make my money with prints. selling 4x6 is great but I want but I make more money selling 8x10s and bigger that's where the money is at so I shoot with uh, the active thought of cropping to a 4 to 5 ratio. As a professional, what observations or opinions do you have on whether or not shooters, professional or hobbyists alike, should crop their images uh, and or if they should shoot um, with the end crop in mind? What do you think, Joseph?
1: Well, I my first question would be why limit to 8 by 10? Why does it have to be that ratio? I mean, you, you can print eight by twelves and that's a very common print size. You can get, or whether you're ordering your prints online or at the local print shop and buying mats and frames for eight by twelves is just fine. So I don't know why he would want to limit himself to that crop ratio. Um, It seems kind of strange to me. And, And as far as shooting for the crop, I mean, I shoot for the photo and if I need to crop the photo to make it better, maybe it's making it super wide. Maybe I want to make a, you know, two to one ratio. Maybe I want to make it, you know, super wide or super tall or whatever. Right. I just crop to the way I think it's going to make the photo most interesting. Right. And if you're selling prints, I guess if you're selling prints at the price where, you know, you're going to buy an eight by 10 or whatever for $5 and you want to sell it for 10, then you probably don't have a whole lot of margin to work. But if you're selling higher end prints, then it really shouldn't matter what your size is because it costs a little bit more to have it cut to a custom size. The mats and framings will be a little bit more to be a custom size, right. but you should be making that up anyway. So,
0: yeah. Right. So and, and that's the the real question. If you're trying to fit into somebody else's structure, then that's what you're you know, if you're if you're trying to make it so that it's inexpensive, someone can grab on you know buy an eight by ten and quickly go down to Rite 8 and pick something up or go down to uh, whatever Pier 1 or or whatever and get that, uh, then then I that is a consideration. I mean I think about how I might crop things uh, pretty often. I mean I think that there are purists who are like you should you know it should be what exactly what you took the picture of. Uh, and I have to admit that I come from a post-production background, which is you know the photo the photo is the first step, <laughs> <laughs> you know so so it's not a, it's usually not the uh, the last step or even the you know uh, anywhere near the end of, of what I'm planning to do with it when I take the photo. So and I and I think it depends on what you know I'm not a you know, a journalist by trade, so I don't have to worry about it. I think that that's the only time it really makes a difference. Um, and even then, you, everything almost everything you see in, in a newspaper is cropped either to fit the format or to right. Um, tell the story that you want uh, and if you're lucky it won't be photoshopped on top of being cropped depending on what magazine you're looking at so uh, <laughs> yeah. so um, so anyway so I think that um, I don't as a professional you know uh, professional that is related to this field I would say that I don't think it's a problem to have a cropped but as Joseph said you can you know don't limit yourself to just what's available uh, at uh, the easy places to buy uh, frames so next question is from Edward Allen he said what's the best way to find out uh, if your images would be of interest commercially as art for posters, et cetera. Uh, For example, is there a database of photographic agencies to send off samples to, or do you just need to post stuff on Flickr and submit work to online stock image sites? This would've been a good one for Nicole, who wasn't able to make it uh, here today, but uh, uh, what do you think, Joseph?
1: Well, I I don't sell commercially that way, so it's a tough one for me to answer, but I would say that I don't think submitting to Flickr or stock is the way to get recognized commercially. I, I, I don't think that's it. Um, I don't know necessarily what the answer is, but to me, that's the people who are getting picked up on Flickr. I think it's just, it's a lot of luck, right? Cause you are a needle in a haystack and maybe Toyota is going to recognize your photo and maybe they're just going to steal it, um, to use it, but maybe they'll actually contact you and offer to pay for it, <laughs> it, it <laughs> if you're lucky. Right. So I, I don't know that that's really the route to go. If you expect to get picked up that way, if, right. um, you know, it's, it's great to get recognized that way, but I wouldn't bank my
0: business on it. Right. Right. Yeah. I, 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 again, we, we, what we need to do is we, in fact, I, I was just introduced by, to another stock photographer that we're going to try to bring on uh, to at least uh, interview and talk to about it. Um, but it's, it's definitely one of those things that uh, I think that I wouldn't necessarily take the photos that I was most proud of and that I thought had the biggest commercial intent and put them up on a stock uh, agency. What I may do though is start developing a relationship with a stock agency to um, you know post some of the images that I think are good and start to experiment with it uh, and, and start to see what what things are uh, of interest. You know, that's we're looking at doing some stock stuff for iStock photo and uh, a couple other folks more in, in the video area but a lot of the way we're researching it to decide what we want to do because we're doing it strictly for stock is to look at photo- photo- photographs that are doing really well. You know, and say, well, what if that was in video? (laughs) You know, Like what, you know, what if the, you know, and and a lot of them might be a little bit more mundane, but we're looking at, you know, what do we do with some, if we have any slow time, right? We haven't had any slow time for two years, but when we get slow time, uh, we always kind of prep for how we're going to kind of fill that. And stock has been one of the ideas. We've got a bunch of big cameras. We've got a lot of stuff we can shoot with. Uh, what if we, um, you know, filled up any kind of dead time with, uh, you know, with some, you know, grabbing some stock images and just see if we can get some residual income coming in. So, sure, and maybe pay for
1: a couple lenses or something like that.
0: So anyway, <laughs> so uh, so anyway, that's the that's kind of our approach uh, to it. But uh, hopefully yeah. that helps.
1: I, I think oh. if you're trying to just do posters, I mean if, if you're expecting to make a living off of it, then you know you probably are going to need a bigger approach. But there's nothing stopping you from just doing it yourself, right? You set up your own website, you get on Twitter, you get a following, and you start selling your own prints. You know, sell them as 20 by 30s and either sell them as gallery prints 20 by 30s for, you know, several hundred dollars or you sell them as posters at 20 bucks a pop and right. try and you know, make up the price and volume.
0: And most people that I know that, that have gotten into that business did not start in that business. I mean, they, they didn't just start shooting photos and start selling posters. I mean, usually right. it's, uh, you know, they, they have been, they got a book deal and they shot a lot of stuff for a book or they shot a lot of stuff and turned it into a book deal and then they're selling, the, they, st- they still sell the prints or they did it on the side and they collected a lot of stuff and then they went to little art shows. I mean, there's a lot of, there's a, kind of an incremental Uh, path to this it's usually not a turnkey kind of situation at least most people that i've met um would you agree or i would agree yeah Yeah. so and i think that's for a lot of photographers that's kind of how we all got into it to some degree is it's it's rarely something where we came out of school or we decided we were going to become a professional photographer and then that's that was it it's usually like a weekend on weekends because we're passionate about it and it slowly builds up to something that we're we're making as much money doing that as we were doing anything else and so we move on you know, so. Yeah, and
1: I think and I think these days it's wise to not expect to make enough money to replace your entire income doing one single thing like that. I mean, I know for me, you know, I, I have multiple sources of income, and that's what keeps me going. Yeah. If I was relying on one single thing, you know, I'd be dead. It, it's you need to have the multiple sources, and that's great because if one dries up, you know, you're not high and dry.
0: Yes, absolutely. Uh, so next, last question that we have uh, sent in is, is um, this is from uh, Daniel. Lashinsky, I think, I think, it's, uh, I think that's the, the, the way it's pronounced at the end. It says, I, always, I've, I have always wondered what makes 50 millimeter lenses so darn special. It, uh, it seems so arbitrary uh, that a lens manufacturers can make 50 millimeter lens that has 1.8 aperture for less than $100, but can't do the same for focal lengths above and below 50 millimeter. Uh, is there some technical limitation that only allows 50 millimeter lenses to be fast and affordable? Do we know what the answer to that is? It's a good question. It is a good question. You buy a 28. What? I bought a 28 millimeter like 1.8 or... No, I bought a 28 millimeter 2.8. And it was like... Uh, it seemed like it started to approach the same price as my one, my 50 millimeter 1.4. Uh, so, um, and I don't have... You know, I don't have a strong answer for that other than... One of the things is is that most people will say that fifty millimeter is kind of our natural right. uh, you know focal length, so that is what we um, tend to see the world around us as except what we can see a lot wider but i mean it's, as far as like how the basically how the parallax and and distortion works within our eye um, you know that's it, it kind of matches a fifty millimeter so that 's why it 's a special lens uh, to some degree at least that's been that 's my understanding of it. Um, the only thing I can say about why it might be something that you can get you can often get faster you know lenses, you know fast lenses that are above and below that and they do get really expensive so do the 50 millimeters once you go over 1.8 um but it, it may also have be a function of mass i mean just a lot of people get 50 millimeter lenses so when you develop the technology for for it um you know that's usually one of the first lenses that people uh get for their camera in my opinion it should be one of the first lenses they get for their camera
1: Yeah, that's precisely what I was going to say. It was volume. It's probably just a case of volume. And you're right about the 50 being the way that we see the world. If you hold a camera up to your eye and you you keep both eyes open, um, a lot of shooters, you know, they they either shoot with both eyes open or they always close one eye. And it's something that you do instinctively. But if you shoot with one eye open or with both eyes open, um, you'll see the world just kind of lines up with the 50 mil. So yeah, it is the pretty much standard. That's the way we see the world. And I think you're right. I think it's just volume.
0: And 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 when we say 50 millimeter, of course, we mean 50 millimeter in a full aperture, In full frame, in yeah. a full frame. Uh, you know, because when you're looking through a crop sensor, like uh, you know any of the smaller cameras, then what you're really looking at is about an 80, right? So I mean, typically, um, somewhere yep. in the range of an uh, 80 millimeter, 85 millimeter uh, lens. So uh, so anyway, so the. Um, Someone, uh, Scotty Bops on the on the IRC said an 85 millimeter 1.4 is "quote unquote" the (laughs) moneymaker, and uh, and and it's true, especially when you're shooting with a crop sensor. That's kind of what you have when you have a 50 millimeter uh, a standard 50 millimeter lens on a crop sensor. You're getting about an 85, and and what and that tends to be that kind of real close up look, Um, and and usually it is a uh, it's a great way to, um, you know, that 85 is just a really. Great way to focus people on someone's eye. You tend to have a good short, uh, short depth of field, but you also have you know just the right framing for it. So, uh, I would say that I still strongly believe that every parent should have a um, at least a little Rebel or a little Nikon with a fifty millimeter fast fifty. Yep. I was taking pictures of my kids over the weekend, and it's just like it really is the. The lens lens. It's the lens have. I've
1: done, I've done many trips now where all I've taken is, uh, you know, body and one lens, the 50, granted mine's the 51.2, which is right. uh, nice lens, right. but that's it. That's all I'll go with. And, you know, yeah, there are obviously times that I miss having a longer or wider lens, but you know what, man, that thing is awesome. And just carrying that one body and lens around is very liberating. Um, you know, I feel like I have to schlep a bunch of lenses when I'm, you know, if I'm on holiday, I'm trying to just go out and enjoy myself and not, not be a photographer. I just want to, you know, I just want to be me, but I don't want to, you know, have just a cruddy point and shoot. Cause I want, you know, I do want to still get really and, nice and, and
0: part of what makes it nice is that it's light. You know, you throw even the 1.4. I mean, the 1.8 is really light, but the really 1.4 light, yeah. is, is, is still fairly light. And I know that, I always have a temptation to put a seventy to, you know, or put a twenty-four to seventy on, or a seventy to two hundred on on my camera, and it's just well, it's a, then that's a commitment. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you're not, you're now, you're now really committed that you're going to be shooting some good images because it's your 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 back is paying for it. So, so I think that's uh, part of it. Now we're we're gonna go jump into some questions uh, online here, trying to find some good photos here, uh, and and I'm trying to read them. If you, if it's too much, I have a hard time. Let's see, I uh, adore my. Lots of people like the 50 and, and, and it is a pretty common thing that a lot of people have the 50, like to me, the basic, I mean, I don't know about if this is the case for you, but for me, my basic kit would be a 50, a 24 to 70, 7200 And like, if I have those, those are like the minimum. And then there's lots of other cool ones, a 28, uh, you know, fisheye, the, the thing, would, are those kind of like, if you had three lenses, would that, would that be in the range that you would get Joseph?
1: Probably twenty four seventy was the first lens that I got, right, and that's that was just the basic you know cover all bases a good fast twenty four seventy two point eight, mm-hmm. um, and then the seventy two hundred. So, right, you get those two to start, and you've got all ranges covered, and then you can start adding in the primes. So, yeah, certainly the fifty. You know, I like some really wides. I've got the 14-A spherical mm-hmm. for really wide stuff. You got like the fisheye, which is fun, and macro lenses. But if you're just gonna limit yourself to two, I'd say those two zooms. If you're gonna add a third in, then yeah, that fifty. A fast 50 is definitely a great third lens to add in there. No question about it.
0: Question. We had a question here from Ghost Dude about the Samsung HZ35W. Um, This is, it's got GPS. uh, It's got a great bright display. It's got a wide angle 24 millimeter. uh, And uh, the question is, is what do we think of it? I I actually think that Samsung is doing a great job with a lot of the new cameras. And I think that, um, you know, I have some specific needs that I'm trying to get solved with uh, a point and shoot and why I don't have, you know, people uh, people who have listened to the show found that I waited a very long time to buy it, you know, <laughs> I, I waited a very long time to replace my SLR, and then I bought four, uh, but but it was, uh, you know, but it takes me a long time, so right now I'm in the zone of trying to find the right point-and-shoot camera, and my, my frustration there is that I want, what I want, I mean, the perfect camera would have uh, for a point-and-shoot, would uh, you know, yeah well it would just it would be able to do it would be able to do high speed like the casio it would have gps like a bunch of the cameras it would have it would be waterproof which would be awesome and uh it would be able to do interval which i keep on talking about and so uh, all of these things wouldn't i mean all of that is software except for the last one it really could be done by most I mean, well the gps needs to be added to it but the um the, you know, that's what I'm, That those are the things that I'm really looking for. And obviously image quality, you know, the, uh, uh I think that the, 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 Samsung ones look great. I haven't taken them out, uh, um, shooting yet to see whether they're going there, but I think that what they're doing with the APS micro, you know, small, like, uh, it looks like a little SL, it was a little SLR, but without the, Without the mirror and um, it's mm-hmm. APS sensor instead of the four thirds. I think what they're, I think they're really on a good track. I think they were. It was exciting to look at them at PMA, and I have I just haven't tested it yet. So yeah. um uh, so I can't say for sure, but it, it does it does look pretty positive. Now there was another question about comparing the seventy to the five fifty, the new two Ti uh, Canon, and uh, I have not um, tested the five fifty. So I you know we have a couple seventies in the in the office. Uh, um, my guess is from the stuff that i read online so far is that it seems like the, 7, that the 5D's low-light performance isn't as good as the 7D. And the seventies low-light performance isn't as good as the 5D. I mean, you're kind of giving that up as you spend less money. Uh, if you're going to be able to capture at um, a faster... Uh, if you're going to be able to capture faster, then you're going to be... I mean, you know, at, at better lighting. I mean, that's the big thing is low-light becomes a big issue with all of these cameras. If, if you're going to be okay with that, then that's fine. Um, there was a, another question about the 20D... I'll ask you this, uh, Joseph, is 20D's top ISO is 1600. I used to have it. Well, I still have a 20D. My wife <laughs> has the 20D. Um, and his fastest lens is a 3.5. Should I upgrade uh, the camera or the lens? Oof.
1: Yeah, because that's a toughie both. <laughs> yeah. but <laughs> yeah, 3.5 is definitely not very fast one. If you're trying to go for low light, obviously it obviously depends on what you're shooting. As I'm shooting concerts. A so he's, got
0: a, he's, shoot, he's been using the 20D to shoot a few local concerts.
1: God. Uh, yeah, both. I mean, you, you need a fast lens to shoot concert photography, right? You, you've got to have 2.8. It's just, you just do, right? You just do. There's just not that much light, and the light changes very quickly, and, um, you know, you need that 2.8 or faster. I just shot something at the Viper room last week, and I shot, it was very low light. They had almost no big lights in there, and I shot everything at f1.2. Yeah. Uh, you know, on an 85 and a 50, 1.2 and two bodies, and that's how I shot everything wide open. And mm-hmm. I know that my you know hit to uh, miss ratio of focus or not is going to be very low. I haven't even looked at the shots yet, but I know it's going to be very low because it's they're moving. I'm shooting at 1.2. I've got about an inch depth of field. Right. But it's the only way to get the pictures.
0: Now, when you when you're focusing for that, a lot of people ask us how do you how do you try to get better um, uh, how do you make sure that you're actually getting something in focus? What do you, what are your what's your technique for getting focus?
1: So, I use you know, the continuous autofocus, of course. I try I'm I'm really good at using the, the little thumb dial, the thumb widget on the back of the cameras to move the focus point. And I'm constantly moving the focus point and keeping it over the artist's face you know, trying to keep it on their eye. Of course, it depends. Some artists are, you know, bouncing around like crazy and some of them are in a little bit lower key, right? But, um, keeping that focus point on them, continuous focusing, just keeping it going. And there are times, many times when the continuous focus, just, it can't do it. It can't grasp it because there's not enough light, in which case time to go manual and you right. just have to focus manually Right. And shoot a lot, and especially if you're shooting wide open. You just got to shoot a lot and understand that you are going to get a lot of out-of-focus pictures.
0: That's the great thing about digital. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Very true. Well, and, and I think that one of the
0: things that's great about digital in general is that is that, you know, it used to be the only way, part of the reason that professional photographers got the photos that they got. I mean, not all of it. I mean, a lot of it was a lot of practice and a lot of skill and a lot of art. But uh, one piece of it is that when you started hanging out with them, you realized how many pictures they took. Mm-hmm. You, know, that, you know, they'd go to a wedding and you, you're taking one role and they're taking 15. You know, and and they weren't trying to get. You're trying to get a good picture every time you pull the trigger. They were trying to get one, you know, three per roll. You know, when when they were firing. Nowadays, everyone gets to shoot like that. You know, and and it's a and it's and it's a good thing to, you know, be that way. I mean, when I shoot, when I see a scene uh, coming up that I think is going to be good with my kids or with people or at an event, uh, I will take you know ten or fifteen photos of that. You know, from different sure. angles, I'll take. I'll make sure that I get a good photo from every angle that things are in focus and things are working, but I'll take a lot of photos, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll dig into that area, um, you know, and, and then I end up with a lot of junk. But to me, that's that's one of the ways, I mean, obviously, I want to wait for that right moment too, um, but I also want to make sure that I don't just try to take one from each angle.
1: Yeah, it's, you know, there's, it's not a replacement for getting the right angle, getting the right composition, getting the right focus, but... You, if, especially if you're shooting people, um, multiple people, like you're shooting your kids, and you've got you know two or three kids running around in the frame at once, they're never all going to look perfect at the same time. And if you're shooting a rapid sequence, then you know, odds are high that you're going to get all three of them smiling or looking cute or whatever at the same time. Um, something like concert photography, you know, where the, the artist is moving around a lot, things are changing very, very quickly, very rapidly. So you do need to fire off a lot of frames, but you can't just open up the camera shoot a thousand frames and hope that something is good you know you do still have to pay a lot of attention to composition and well and also waiting i
0: mean you know there's this whole like waiting for someone you know a lot of times if you see someone having a lot of expressions and being in talking you want to wait for them to get to that right expression you don't want to be in between shots uh, or in between focus when they're doing i think but i think some people i see taking pictures i think they're just taking lots of photos thinking they're going to get something good and they you still do have to wait for that i think that um Uh, a lot of great photographers that I see, you can see how they just kind of sit there and wait for the scene to unfold in front of them. And they're going to wait for that, just that right moment. And it does take, it takes a lot of um, thinking about the composition. You got to be watching everything in the composition at one time, which I think um, requires a certain level of mental muscle that I'm still only developing. You know, I, I still every once in a while get into the zone where I'm paying attention to, you know, the stuff over in the far corner and my foreground subject and, you know, all those other pieces. Um, so, there's a question about, can you comment on lens calibration with the new Canon bodies? I've heard that um, much more affordable Sigma lenses have back-focusing problems but are otherwise good, um, and these could be corrected with lens calibration, could they not? So, um, I have Sigma lenses, uh, and they seem pretty sharp uh, on my on my, uh, um on my on my Canon. So the the ones that I I actually went a little bit for the less expensive route uh, when I got the my seventy to two hundred and twenty four to seventy. We bought Sigmas, you know, for that which are still I mean they're still eight hundred dollars each or seven hundred dollars each. Thing. Sure. Cheap, well, but cheap, the but new
1: 7200 28 from Canon is twenty five hundred dollars.
0: Exactly. So <laughs> I decided I couldn't quite afford that, and so um, uh, so anyway, so that's the you know so we haven't had that problem um, and I haven't tried. Uh, working out uh, lens lens calibration with uh, the new Canon bodies, but it definitely sounds like something we should we should figure out.
1: Uh, well, I've, I have done that before. Mm-hmm. Um, I was having focus issues. It turned out to be the body. It was a problem with the body with the one D S Mark III when that first came out. So um, it's how does been it repaired. work? Well, so basically what you do is you you set up camera on a tripod and you know a fixed something that you're focused on and focus manually get or i'm uh, no, sorry focus automatically get it uh-huh. you know locked in on focus don't change the focus and then on the back of the camera you go through settings and you can calibrate you can tweak it in you know minus one minus two minus three i don't remember how high or low it goes maybe 10 points in the direction mm-hmm. and you fire off a sequence at each position and so what i did it was funny because i just stumbled on these photos the other day and going through my aperture library and, and i have this uh a uh, sequence of photos that's, you know, identical, a picture of just, you know, basically a color chart on the wall. And then I had used my iPhone and I'd set, you know, minus 10 on the iPhone. And then I swiped it and said minus nine and swipe again at minus eight. And I had a picture of each one of those. So when you go through the pictures, just like minus 10, all up to plus right. 10. And I roll through them. And the point was you then look at those at hundred percent and view, look for which one's sharpest. And if you decide that minus two is sharpest, then you set that in the camera to minus two. And the beautiful thing is that you can set that on a lens by lens basis, right the lens have microchips in them, and the camera knows which lens right. it is, so it says, okay, this lens is minus two this one 's plus one this one is zero right and like I said in my case, it turned out that it was the body that was a problem, not the lens, but I did go through the exercise it was very interesting to see
0: yeah no i, I it 's definitely something that, that we 're now going to do i haven 't really thought about doing it that much. we do a lot of back focus um, it 's pretty common for us to do back focus on our on our larger cameras so we have a what's called a sony f950 which is a big video camera and um it has a uh it will the back focus breathes a little bit (laughs) so a lot of times uh if we start in the morning and it's cold in the evening in the afternoon it will will, um, tend to check our back focus again um and uh and you do that you know for us we're doing that at a you know we set the uh, pretty far out. We set we set a focus chart out, and then we get it into focus, and we make sure that we're we get it to where the lens says that it's ten feet away, and then we then we adjust the back focus until it agrees. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and and that's very important when are working with larger film cameras because uh, w- number one is you have a short depth of field, but number two is that a lot of times in film you're measuring you're just me- you're just dr- you're measuring out the distance and then just turning the lens to it. You're not. There's not a lot of, not doing what normal photographers do, which is actually try to focus, you know, zoom in and focus and then zoom back or whatever. You don't do any of that because you're, um, because a lot of times you have primes on, you can't.
1: So, um, so well, anyway. Careful, careful with that, just because what you said, I want any users, uh, listeners to think that's the best way to go. Zooming in, focusing and zooming back out will more often than not change your focus plane.
0: Yes. So. Yes. So that's a, that's a very common thing to do in video. You know, a video, you'll see a video produ- production guy, just zoom in you know, pull, you know, get a focus and pull back. Mm -hmm. Um, but the cameras are built to do that. Um, when you do that with your, with your still camera, it it doesn't oftentimes work out that way. (laughs) 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 So yeah, we got to be careful of that. So other questions here. Um, so one question is: Is are you, do you think paying an extra hundred dollars to get the um, EFS eighteen millimeter kit lens for the Canon is worth it? Uh, I'm not a big fan of the kit lenses in general. Uh, I really am a strong believer that the first if the first camera that you get is uh, and Joseph, you have to tell me if you I, I would get a body if, you, if this is the first SLR you're going to get. I would get a body and a fifty millimeter, one point eight.
1: You know, I think or one point four, if where you put the money into it. where you're going to go, right? How much money you're going to spend? Of course, just where you're going with this. If if you think that you are going to be getting into this and wanting to buy more lenses and more gear later down the road, then every lens that you buy should be thought. You should be buying it with a thought towards the future, which means not buying and Canon, not buying the white dot lenses, which are the crop sensor lenses. Right, right. You know, buy the red dot ones that are for all bodies. that can work on the on the. Crop sensor and the regular ones. Yeah. I
0: mean, When you're looking at spending an extra $100, but, you, but it's like $100. You can spend $100 on the kit lens or $100 on a 50 millimeter.
1: Right. If you're talking about just a straight 50, then sure. But when you get into the zooms, the prices do go up dramatically. So there's a real consideration of, okay, are you really ever going to upgrade? You're going to take this so far that you're going to buy a full-frame camera. And if you really are just hobbyist and you really aren't going to go into those you know, $3,000 bodies and above then some of those, you know, lower end lenses are pretty darn good.
0: Yeah. I, I guess what I'd say though, is that what you really give up, and to me, what a lot of people, when a lot of people are asking me what my, um, a lot of people are asking me, like, how do you get that that great short depth of field uh, at a, with a 3.5, you know, uh, stop le- with a 3.5 aperture lens, you're not going to, you, you very rarely are going to get a shallow depth of field. The kit, the kit lens is, is, um, uh, is, can go back and forth but if you're if at three, especially when you zoom in remember when you start to zoom in on it a lot of those are they're not 3.5 they're three five to five six but oh, the and variable
1: so, aperture lenses are yeah, that's, yeah so that's and these like are like, a, the, a lot
0: of times these are the the kit lenses that people are getting um and and i do think and someone was pointing out that that the that the um the the 18 the nikon 18 to 200 is a very versatile lens and it probably is um and and i'm not saying that you should never buy any of these lenses but i would say that if it was the first thing that i would get um, you know, and I, I only had a limited amount of money and I had that hundred dollars extra for the kit lens or to buy another one. If we're just talking about this constraint, like I'm buying a rebel and I'm, you know, or a, or a, or a little Nikon and I want to put on a uh, one lens and I only have a hundred dollars to do it. I'd rather for the hundred dollars, I'd rather spend it on a 50 millimeter than a, on a kit lens. That's mm-hmm. that, that. I think that's mine. And then of course, after that, you know, you're down, you're off to the races. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we have, a, do we have any more questions? We're running, running close to the end here. Um, let's see here. Totally. Okay. Okay. So here's the question is, this is a good question. Um, and I'll let Joseph uh, run with it. Is the depth of field determined by the focal length distance or aperture?
1: All of the above. Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so that all of those things make a difference and, 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 and you're, you'll start paying attention to that. So, um, do you want to explain that Joseph?
1: Sure. So if you've got, let's, you know, let's go for this fifty one point four lens, right? And if you set the focus point to the closest possible, which I don't know, maybe it's two and a half feet or three feet, I call it three feet. And I'm making up numbers here, but say at three feet, it's three inches or two inches of, of depth of field, which is you know, very little. And if you're, you're talking about focusing on someone's eye, if you put the center of focus right at their eye, the tip of their nose could be out of focus. Very possible. But without changing anything but the focal length, uh, but the, uh, the distance to the subject, you step back 10 spaces and that, f- that depth of field is going to get much larger when you focus on that person that is now farther away. And so that two inches may turn into, you know, six inches or 12 inches or 24 inches, whatever it may be. But of course, the subject is farther away. You're losing that intimacy that you had with, uh, uh had with the shot in the first place.
0: Right. So, so all of those things make a difference. And so as you're, as you're figuring that out now, the, uh, we had one more question here, or we had another question about shooting HDR with, um, rainbows or should we, or why are they always washed out? Um, you know, I think HDR is, is one way to go. I think that what you have to do is kind of, it's difficult you kind of have to expose for the, for the rainbow. You got to make sure you're getting the color of the rainbow in and then figure out how you're going to get everything else back. That's
1: I guess with HDR though you are exposing for multiple everything. things in the scene right so one of your exposures would be for the rainbow and then another
0: one other something else yeah. right exactly um, another question here is do um is a question for me is do I use uh, the center focus and re recompose, uh, or use all focus points. So, um, I am a, I'm an old fashioned center focus person. Um, and after Joseph was talking about the way he does it, I'm like, Oh, I got to try that. Uh, moving that, moving whatever that, that focus point around is. I have to admit, I'm just so natural about, I focus, focus, turn, focus, turn, focus, turn. And that gets me in trouble every once in a while, because if I'm going too slow of a, too slow of a shutter speed and I turn and fire and I didn't quite settle, um, it, you'll see it. And so, um, so that's that's the that's the issue, and I and I think that Joseph probably has a, a, a better solution as far as how that goes. Except it requires too much thinking. And I'm not that smart. <laughs> it does require a lot so, of thinking. So um, I'm not that smart about that. So anyway, the um, uh, so that's the as far as using the all using the all focus points. I can tell you, I absolutely never use that. Um, the 7D uh, came um, came shipped that way. So when we got it, and I kept on getting into production where I didn't. You know, I was like, I just pulled the set because I use a 5D most of the time and I bring, I bring the 70 and suddenly it would be like, and it would be like all these points. And and what I'm, what I'm pretty sure of is the set that using the all focus points pretty much ensures that nothing that you actually want to be in focus (laughs) is properly in focus. I mean, it's, I have no idea what it's thinking um but it is uh it is the most insanely bad um focused solution i've ever seen i mean i just i took a whole round of photos where they were just every person that i was trying to keep in focus and finally i, I saw the photos and i was like okay i have to go back and um i'm gonna sit down for you know it, it was turned out that is is six it minutes a lot of six thing. or seven minutes and i had it figured out and i turned it all off but i kept on looking for it and couldn't find it there's a lot of menus there
1: What's funny is a lot of the little point and shoots do a much better job with that because they have things like facial recognition in them, which if you're taking pictures of right. people, focus on the face well, and, and you're and,
0: done. And the 70 has that as well. The, the problem is, is that I think also those little ones also have a very small chip because the size of the chip, of course, um, like the aperture and the focal distance and the focus distance, you know, all of that. Like that, the, the size of the chip makes a difference on what's and how much is in focus. And so on those right. little cameras, a lot of times, it's kind of like when we used to have a, uh, when you have a pinhole or when you have like the little, remember the little 110 AI? Oh, yes. The ASA oh, yes. cameras. Um, everything's in focus because, the, right. because the, the, the size of the image is so tiny uh, or the size of the imager is so tiny, it, you know, it doesn't get a lot out of focus.
1: Yep. So I just wanted to hit a couple more points on the, on the user question of uh, center focus and recompose. There are, other than the problem that you mentioned, which isn't one that I would have thought of, but yeah, if you're shooting slow shutter speed, then you have the risk of, of movement there. The two main problems that you have in there are, uh, one, that your subject will move. Right. right. It takes time to focus and then move the camera, and by then your subject may have changed position, you right. know, walk out of frame, turn their head, whatever, and suddenly it's no longer the picture that you thought you were taking. Um, and number two is that if you're shooting a very narrow, shallow depth of field, then you could move out of focus by simply that, that little bit of a change just by yeah. shifting just a little bit, that focus plane is going to change with it. And if you're talking about a really narrow focus plane, that's going to shift, you know, that's a distance to lens. It's an arc, right? You're doing yep. this and mm-hmm. it could very easily uh, shift out of focus. So yeah, I've, unless you're shooting, you know, uh, I don't know, scenics that are mm-hmm. pretty darn far away, I would never recommend Using shooting that way.
0: Well, there you go. I've been corrected.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, not corrected, just enhanced. <laughs> well, it's
0: it just it's one of those things that for me, a lot of times everything's moving so fast that a lot of times I, you know, I get a lot of stuff in focus, you know, the way I want it. Um, and I, you know, I found that when it gets over to one side or whatever, then I end up finding trying to find my way to correct it. And I don't for me, it's easier to leave it in that one place and deal with it rather than sp- spending time trying to get it into another place when something in front of me is happening. So it's kind of a an all purpose solution you know, for, for my issues.
1: Let me give a little tip. And this is definitely for more kind of advanced users, but it's something that, that I recommend for anybody who's serious about their cameras on the back of most of your DSLRs, you're Mm -hmm. going to have, and and I'm holding up a camera. I know this is uh, for the people listening. You're not going to see this, but on the back of the camera, there is an AF on button, autofocus on button. And by default, when the camera comes out of the box, you push that button, it'll focus. Great. Mm -hmm. But of course, if you push the shutter speed, uh, the shutter release button halfway, it's going to focus as well. I turn that off. You turn that off, right? If you disable that, you have to go into the camera settings. You turn, take focusing away from that shutter button. So away from the shutter release and put it only on the AF button on the back. Then you can leave your camera in continuous focus mode all the time. You never have to change the focus mode. If you want to focus, you push that button on the back. If you don't, you don't. Meaning that you can manually focus. Right, without having to switch modes, and you know when you push the shutter release button, it's not going to refocus your picture because you've taken focus away from that. Right. So by separating those two things, yeah, you focus when you want to with that button on the back, right. um, and then and you know fire the frame by obviously pushing the shutter release or focus manually it's great.
0: And that's I mean because that's what I what I do is I I'm pushing when I do the autofocus, I'm pushing the back. My thumb goes in to, to set the focus, and then I fire. So it's like you know and and my now my brother. We we're just having this discussion in the office. This is the kind of geeky discussions that we end up in. We had a long discussion of how we use our little buttons on our 5Ds. And so my brother uses, he has disabled it for both focus, the back one for, for the focus, and he has that in auto exposure. So, so he uses that, he pushes it in and has that set the exposure. And then he still uses the, the shutter to, uh, pushes it halfway down to get the focus that he wants and then fires. So mm-hmm. it's a, that's even that one. I was like, I'm gonna have to think about that one a little bit. I mean, cause <laughs> I do notice that, you know, that when you have auto exposure, now I have to admit, I get frustrated with the auto exposure of most cameras too. So I'm, I shoot about 80% of the time in full manual, you know, like I'm mm-hmm. going to figure out what I want and then I'm going to, you know, I, I just used to, you'll see a bunch in any group of images that I have, you'll see a bunch of like too bright, too dark. And then a whole bunch of them that are about what I wanted.
1: Yeah, see, I would say the problem with his, with your brother's method there is you obviously, you have to push that button down to take the picture, right? That's the only way to fire the frame is to push the shutter release button. Right. So every time you push that button, you are Auto-focusing. focusing So if you want to go manual, then you have to take your, you have to switch the modes on the camera, yep. right? You have to hit the switch to go right. manual. Right. which is what I'm trying to avoid, right? By I don't want to have to turn any more switches on or off than I have to. So by right. having that, that thumb control there, if I don't want to focus automatically, you can just, uh, I just you don't place do the button.
0: Very yeah. good. Very good. I think that turned into a very good discussion. Oh, good. Um, so, uh, so anyway, we have run out of time. And so we are going to close this one up. Joseph, where can people find you?
1: People can find me online all over the place. I'm going to throw out apertureexpert.com this time. Follow on the Twitters at apertureexpert. And also I want to throw out there, I am going to be in Hong Kong at the end of this month with a couple days free. And if there is anybody out there who would like to either do a photo walk or help organize a Aperture Workshop or photography workshop or anything like that. I have been absolutely swamped. I've had barely any time to look at it, but I'm going to be there for four days. I think it's the 25th to the 29th. Fantastic. And um, I got I got nothing to do right now. So get a suit. Get it. Get it. <laughs> I keep
0: on trying to find a way that I can get a that I can get a trip to Hong Kong so I can buy a suit, <laughs> so uh, really, really well handmade suits. And um, so, and by the way, if you have questions that you'd like us to answer, um, so this is a general Q and A. Um, you know, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I love doing this. Uh, we, we're we're going to try to do this at least once a month. If you have a question that you want incorporated into the show, uh, we we do Q and A every show. Uh, uh, what you want to do is, of course, go to Twip Log dot com so uh dot com there's a place there where you can give us the questions and that's gonna get them into the system uh, that's where you that's where you want to um, uh, put that in uh, if you there's a question online about if you can uh, where can we submit stories for MacBreak Weekly that's uh, m b w ideas um, and um, you can also submit uh, ideas for Twip at Twip Ideas um, so that's in the Delicious so you um, link uh, if you go to delicious.com and you link it with and you just add a tag that is either mbw ideas for mac break, twip ideas for twip uh twim ideas for this week in media so those are those are how all of those uh, get in front of us so um so anyway so thank you so much for watching and uh you can take that lens cap right off get out there shooting